if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 2. That's where we are. We started our series in the Gospel of Mark last week, and Mark begins his Gospel by saying, uh, Jesus is the Son of God. And then he is going to take 16 chapters to prove that thesis statement, that Jesus truly is the Son of God, and what it means that the Son of God has come and dwelled among us, what it means that Jesus walked on this planet, and he called disciples, and he um, uh, encountered all kinds of people um, in, in his teaching and in his miracles. And ultimately, Mark's making the case that why he came was to die on the cross, to pay for our sins. And so, he's leading us to, um, to that story, to that event, to, to that passion, we call it, of Jesus. And so, here in Mark chapter 2, we will be introduced to the people that did not like Jesus while he was here. Um, and it turns out, Jesus, um, while he's God and loves everybody, he didn't really like them very much either. Um, he, he loved them. He just didn't like them, all right? Work that out here in a minute. Um, but this is what I want to do. So, so it, it's, it, there's a, a long stretch here, and it starts in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, and it goes all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. Now, I'm not going to read all of those passages, but I want to read, um, there are kind of five stories there. In each of these stories, Jesus is going to encounter uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And each of those stories, they are going to have a question for Jesus. They're going to be questioning Jesus. In the last story, Jesus, the fifth one, Jesus questions them, and they have no answer to his question. So what I want to do is I want to read the first story, which is the first 12 verses, and then I'm going to skip all the way to chapter 3 and read those six verses uh, because they're bookends to um, this, this whole picture that Mark is painting for us. So this is, this is how it goes. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And when he was preaching the word to them, uh, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. This is the the first of the the questions, all right? Who, Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that uh, they had they thus questioned within themselves, uh, said to him, said to them, "Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk?" 
But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. If you'll skip down to chapter 3, verse 1. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, or a paralyzed hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked round at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out immediately, held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us this morning to see... um, how you inspired John, or Mark, to write and to reveal that your son Jesus is the Son of God. So, Father, in these episodes that you inspired, Mark recorded, and that we're reading this morning, we want to see clearly who Jesus is. And Father, in seeing that, that we would see clearly who we are and our need for him. We ask this the only way we can, and that's in Jesus' name, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, let me start it this way. I think there's a difference in what the world believes um, that there's a difference in what we believe as Christians and, a, and, and what the world believes that we believe as Christians. There's a thing that we believe as Christians, and I want to talk about that this morning, but the world, they view it different. They believe that we believe something different than we believe. Let me explain it this way. There are folks that if they don't have a lot of background about church, they don't have, uh, didn't grow up in Sunday school, um, here's what they think. They, they think about Christianity that, that if you obey the, the laws, the, the moral laws, if you're, if you're good, you, you obey um, because you believe that if you, if you don't obey, bad things will happen to you. That, that, the, that, that what Christianity is, is, that is to be as good as you can, because if you're not as good as you can, the... Um, the, the things uh, that you do wrong, you will be punished for. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to have done more good than bad so that you'll be saved. And, and that Jesus is the one who will judge the deal. And if you've, if you've done more good than you've done bad, then he'll save you. That that's sort of the the general feeling about what Christianity is, and that's Jesus' role. 
to keep up with how much good or bad that you are doing. Now, the reality is, while we would say, hey, listen, Christianity believes this, the world thinks Christianity believes something else, that something else is that you're going to be weighed on how much good, how much bad, if you've done more good than bad, Jesus is going to save you. That's what the world believes. Listen, there are a lot of folks in here that believe that functionally. That your life is about keeping score of how much good you do. Are you doing more good than bad? That your litmus test is looking in the mirror and saying, listen, I've done more good than bad, or I'm better than so-and-so. And we have the wrong idea about what Christianity is. And because of that, this... this devotion we have to Jesus, this devotion we have to the Word that God has revealed about Himself is, is based in fear. And we believe that because we, maybe we grew up, maybe we were around it, maybe th- this is the, the things that we heard um, because church used fear to get people to act right. But the reality is heaven's not a place for those who are afraid of hell or afraid of judgment. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is a place for those that love God. In in some ways, that's what this passage is bumping up against this morning. Who, Who is Jesus? And Jesus claims himself to be God so that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing God. We are getting a picture of who God is. And what does it mean in our life to encounter God? Well, that's why Mark introduces us to the scribes and the Pharisees this morning. Now, if we lived in the first century, we would look in the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the good people. I mean, they're they're the people that wore the holy clothes, they did the holy things, they ate the holy foods. They knew the scriptures, they taught the scriptures. They were in charge of the religious life and the ceremony that the people who were Jewish took part in. And so if you were you know, just an average Joe or an average Jane, and you saw a religious leader or you saw a scribe, your idea would be, well, that's, that's what people look like that are going to be with God forever. And yet when Jesus sees them, he sees someone different. They're going to ask four questions of Jesus. They're not bad questions. They're reasonable questions based upon what Jesus will say and what Jesus will do. But ultimately, Jesus is going to turn it around, and he's going to ask them a question. We read it this morning, chapter 3, verse 4. And he's going to reveal about them who they really are. Now, there's three things. Let me walk through these three things this morning. Hopefully, I've given you an outline of of the passage Um, I'll get as far as I can get, and then we'll close. But these are the three things. One, Jesus reveals that you have a need that's greater than all your other needs. That's the one thing about him. He reveals that you have a need that's greater than all your other needs. The second thing is, it is your relationship to Jesus, not your practice of religion, that is most important. 
And finally, I think we'll see, it's not the questions that you ask Jesus. It's the conclusion you come to in response to his answers that reveals your heart. It's not the questions you ask. It's the conclusion you come to about his answers. That's what reveals your heart. Well, Mark opens up in chapter 2 with this paralyzed guy. He's got four friends. The four friends think it's a good idea, and they're going to take the paralyzed guy to Jesus because they've heard Jesus heals people. It's one of my favorite stories. I, uh, my old dear friend Clark Crawford used to uh, talk about this story to high school kids at Young Life and talk about the four guys being high school kids and um, grabbing the guy and not finding a way because only high school kids would be dumb enough to open somebody's roof up and drop them in. Particularly if the passage in chapter 2, and I don't think it necessarily means this, but it certainly could mean this, that it's actually Jesus' house. They've actually ruined Jesus' roof there in Capernaum. That's bold. And they drop the paralyzed guy down into the room where Jesus is teaching. Whatever it is he was teaching about, we don't know. But we realize that once the paralyzed guy is dropped down in the middle, he's looking around at all these people looking up at Jesus. And I know in his heart he's trying to say to Jesus, I didn't do this. <laughs> they did it. Jesus looks at him and it is clear to everyone what's going on. You got the four guys, they're up looking down through the hole. You got the guy in the middle, the center of attention. And everyone's waiting for Jesus to heal him because they all know that Jesus can heal. And Jesus looks at him and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, let's just take that on the surface for a second. That was probably a disappointing moment for that guy. Thinking, well, that's great. How am I going to get out of this house now? Four guys are sitting up there looking through the hole thinking, wait a minute, what did he say? His sins are forgiven. They're like, no, 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 Jesus, it's his legs. That's the problem. Well, two things I want you to see. One, Jesus is going to talk about their faith. The faith of the four, the faith of the five, probably. He means the faith of the five. Faith in Mark's gospel, as he talks about it, um, faith um, is, is not only what you believe, but, but how you respond to what you believe. But faith is believing, but it's also, in Mark's gospel, it's, it's responding to it. It's, it's, it's acting on what you believe. It's, it's believing it so much that you actually are moving towards it. It's, even if there's obstacles in the way, you go, you know what, I believe, I believe, and I'm, and I'm moving towards that belief. That's Mark's idea of faith. And Jesus is going to acknowledge that faith. Hey, listen, this is faith. The fact that you climbed up on the roof and cut a hole in the, in the, in the, in the thatch up there, and dropped it, that's faith. And then let's talk about the idea that Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven. 
think he's actually pressing on him, what he's offering to him. It's a new relationship with God, not as, not as a boss, but as a father, son. Your sins are forgiven. So that you're forgiven, you're loved, accepted child of God as, as father through Jesus. That's the most important thing. Mark wants us to see that in this story. In fact, we're left with the crowd at the end there in verse 12, being amazed and glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This isn't what we expected. See, I think one of the things that Mark wants you to know is that, listen, no matter what you think your problem is, you know, if you think, this is my most important, my most urgent problem, Maybe it's physical, maybe it is financial, maybe it is social, maybe it is with your family, maybe it's relational. But whatever you think your greatest problem is, what Mark is telling you is saying, no, no, that's not your biggest problem, that's not your biggest need. And I would say, listen, if, if you haven't experienced the healing that comes with Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Daughter, your sins are forgiven. That that's the healing that you need this morning. No matter what else your problem is, what you need to hear this morning is that your sins are forgiven. That's the most fundamental need. Now, you might stop and ask, and it would be a good thing to ask. Mark wants us to ask you, what, what sins are being forgiven? I mean, how rowdy could this guy be living on a mat? Well, in that day, certainly a lot of people believe, probably most people, that, that sin was connected with physical ailment, that if you were if you were blind or you were paralyzed or had some other um, physical uh, problem, that that was somehow related to sin. And maybe sometimes it was. Maybe that's what most of them thought. I don't think that's necessarily what Jesus was thinking here in this, but it certainly could have. Maybe it was a result of some regrettable act that happened in his life. And he found himself on a mat. We're not exactly told. But I don't think that's the point. You see, the reality is he was sinful. He was born sinful. Came out of the womb shaking his fist at God because he had a father and a mother who came from a father and a mother that went all the way back to Adam and Eve. And sin entered the world and it we're born with it in our hearts. We, by our nature, are rebellious towards God. And if you think about it, maybe this man had some real problems. I mean, you lie on a mat long enough, and particularly in that culture, and all of the people 
that would have talked behind your back, or maybe they quit talking behind your back, they would just talk when you could hear. The things that they would say, you know, and today we would call them the haters. I mean, imagine the bitterness that settled in. If I ever get off this mat, I'm not going to forget how I was treated. Maybe he had a whole list going of people that had wronged him. That if anything ever changed in his life, he was going to get them. I would want nothing more than to show that person or to prove something or to redeem something. Maybe that's you this morning. You know, this is a hard thing to say, but maybe you're here this morning and something has, has happened to you. Maybe something that wasn't even your fault. And yet you find yourself these years later paralyzed in your own bitterness or anger or pity. When Jesus says to this man, you are forgiven, the man's being set free from the paralysis of sin. The paralysis of bitterness from hurt, from self-pity. And in certain, not only are you, now you can forgive. You're free in one sense. Forgiveness is a, is a healing. The bitterness is a paralysis. Guilt is a paralysis. Self-pity is a paralysis. And only Jesus has the authority to look into your life, into your heart, and say to you, you are forgiven. Only Jesus can heal you in the deepest and most important way you need to be healed. Listen, I don't know. Maybe some of you struggle with the idea of Jesus speaking directly to you, calling your name, and saying, You are forgiven. Well, Jesus knows what the religious leaders that were there are thinking. They had their eye on Jesus. They had begun spying on him. They were there, and he perceived that their hearts were restless with the question, who does this guy think he is? What kind of blasphemy is this that this man would claim to be able to forgive sin. So what Jesus does in verse 9, he says, he poses a question back at him. This is his answer. Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And in some ways, think about it, it's a trick question. The natural thing is we say, oh, well, it's easier to just say your sins are forgiven. Nobody's going to be able to check that out. If you say rise and walk, then the guy's got to get up, he's got to rise, he's got to walk. That obviously must be the harder thing. Except I don't think that's what Jesus means. 
and to show you the power that I have, that I'm not like the rest of you. I'm going to heal this man. He heals him. He gets up and he walks. And in some ways, Jesus is doing this. It's a sign. It's a signal to say, I am who I say I am. In fact, that get up that he commands him to do and the get up that the man does it's a word an unusual word mark's going to use it later in his gospel as are the other gospel writers uh, to describe what happens on easter morning when jesus rises from the dead and walks out of the grave and the only reason that this man can get up now and the only reason that Jesus can forgive him and heal him is because someday Jesus is going to lay down his life in death and then rise again for his salvation, for his justification. See, in some ways, Jesus is saying, the easier thing for me to do is to tell this man to get up and to walk. It is with a word that I spoke creation into being. But it will be my death that brings salvation to all. Which is harder? Oh, it is not hard for me as the living God to command physical and, 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 and natural things. Jesus will command the wind and the waves to stop. He will cast out demons. He will heal people of all diseases. Well, that's not the hard thing. The hard thing? That's the forgiveness of sins. Because sin has a price. Sin must be paid. God is just. He cannot merely overlook sin. There has to be a price paid for sin. And Jesus is saying the harder thing is, is that I stepped out of eternity into history to take on humanity to become your sin and die for it. I am here to be the one who endures your penalty for sin. Oh, this is the, for him to have his sins forgiven? Well, this is the harder thing. It will cost me my life. Well, at the end of that, he tells him, the Son of Man, in verse 10, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He's going to say it again in verse 28 here at the end of chapter 2. And he's looking back at Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel sees one who's called like a Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days, that's God, who's in heaven. And he receives from God this authority and, and glory and dominions and all people will serve him and his dominion is everlasting and his kingdom is without end. It'll never be destroyed. And Jesus is announcing, I am the king over a kingdom that is coming. The world is changed. The kingdom of God comes crashing in here. Well, it goes from there. Mark moves from a crowd being amazed to the calling of one who's most unlikely. The next bit is this calling of Levi, who we also know as Matthew, the gospel writer. 
He's walking by, he's sitting in a tax booth. Jesus walks by and says, hey, Matthew, why don't you follow me? One of the most hated of all the people in Israel would have been a Jew that had sold out to the Romans, taxing other Jews, and and skimming off of them off the top. There was no lower human being in their eyes than a man like Levi. Jesus calls him, goes, has a dinner with he and all of his other maybe tax collector buddies and sinners. They gather all the sinners up, put flyers out, and um, has a meal with them. And the, and, the, and the scribes and the Pharisees, first, they accused him of blasphemy because he forgives sins. Now they want to know why he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus, in verse 17, will answer. And he says, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. And I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Not only do I forgive sin, but I go after the sinners. It's not waiting for them to come to him. He's going after them, just as they are. See, the greatest need that you have think you have, it's not the greatest need you have. The greatest need you have is not a temporary relief from a crisis or a problem. It's the eternal forgiveness of your sin. The second thing Mark's telling us is it's not your relationship, or it is your relationship to Jesus, not your practice of religion. The next two Sections. It starts in verse 18. It's a, um, a question about fasting. And then you get to verse 23, and there's going to be an issue about the Sabbath. Both of those things are related to the law. Jesus wasn't fasting. He was, you know, he'd eat. The, the Pharisees, they fasted on Mondays. They fasted on Thursdays. Jesus wasn't doing that, nor were his disciples. And they wanted to know, why in the world are you not practicing this tradition? Well, Jesus is going to give them three imageries that's going to, uh, three images that's going to press in. He's going to say, look, this is, it's like a bridegroom. Um, uh, I'm the bridegroom. They're my bride. We're here at the wedding feast. This is a party, a celebration. He's going to say there's like, uh, you, you look at life like, uh, uh, like patchwork. Like here's a, you got a hole in your jeans and you, and you put a patch on it. We should do that when I was little. Or it's like trying to take new wine and put it in an old wineskin. And the old wineskins don't hold new wine because as the new wine ferments, the skins break. That, that what is old is incompatible with what is new. That, that the traditions and the, and the law and all those things that you are clinging to for your hope that's incompatible with this kingdom of the gospel that is coming. See, originally God gave the law to the Israelites to set them apart, but his purpose of the law was that it was this tool. It was a, uh, it was a, it was a, 
uh, a measurement. It was like a thermometer to see if their temperature was in line. It, it was a diagnostic tool that demonstrated their need for salvation. The law could never save them. It revealed to them they needed a Savior. And yet what their answer was is they would try harder, that they were using the law to try to be saved. And Jesus is saying that's never what the intention was. And this gospel that's coming is going to be incompatible with all your efforts to try to gain God's pleasure. demonstrates it in the fasting. He demonstrates it with the idea of the Sabbath. They're walking through. He and his disciples, they were hungry. They grabbed the, the, the tops of the, uh, the stalks of the, of the barley, and they were eating of it, which was a violation of some Sabbath tradition that the Pharisees and the scribes had, had uh, enlisted. They were the, the Sabbath police. They want to know why Jesus would break the laws of the Sabbath. Well, he answers to them by appealing to a story of David. He wants them to know that, listen, it's the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is God's holy. The accusation, you know, what's not lawful? Their concern was that the law, the law was, was broken. Jesus says it's not about the law being broken. It's about the holiness of God. And on top of all that, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. Here's what he's saying to him. Listen, religion comes in. Listen, if you obey, then God has to accept you. Jesus comes along with the gospel and says, because God has accepted you radically and at infinite cost to himself, through the sacrifice of Jesus, it, it, it changes how you view your relationship with God. It's not one grounded in fear. It's one grounded in acceptance. One writer gives this illustration. He says, imagine that an early Christian in the Roman Empire talking to a non-Christian friend, his neighbor. The neighbor says, hey, I understand you're a Christian and I love religion. The pageantry's wonderful. Now, I don't know about much about the Christian religion, so where, where are your temples? And the Christian would say, well, we don't have any temples. Jesus is our temple. And they would say, well, no temples. Well, where do your priests do their work? The Christian would say, well, we don't have any priests. Jesus is our priest. Well, no priests? Well, where do you offer the sacrifices, the, you know, to curry the favor with your God? And he answers, well, we don't have sacrifices anymore. Jesus was the final sacrifice. Because Jesus is the God who, who's come to get us. Well, we don't need a religious 
cult to try to get favor with some remote God. Jesus is God come to us. Your neighbor would say, well, what kind of religion is that? And the answer is, well, it's no religion at all. See, it's utterly different than anything that religion has. Jesus is the bread. He's the tabernacle. He's the priest. He's the sacrifice. When you have him, you have everything. It's the last bit here. It's not the questions that you ask Jesus. And you may have legitimate, real, hard questions. And I'm telling you, Jesus is big enough to handle the questions that you have. It's the conclusion you come to in response to his answers that reveals the state of your heart. Jesus is going to answer these Pharisees in the synagogue scene where they've set Jesus up. They found somebody with a paralyzed hand. They went and sat him on the front row because they knew Jesus would be there and they knew Jesus couldn't resist. They're waiting for him to do this evil deed of healing a man on the Sabbath. So Jesus is aware of it. He calls the guy up and looks at them and says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? He does this because he knows they were plotting his harm. They were plotting his death. The next verse tells us this is how they responded to all the questions and all the answers. The Pharisees in chapter 3, verse 6, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him about how to destroy him. An alliance between the Herodians and the Pharisees is laughable. It's two groups that utterly hate each other. And yet, Jesus brings them together in their hatred for him. See, the reason they're mad is because when Jesus meets a moral person, he meets a good person. He meets a person who's working his way up the ladder of all good things. And then when Jesus meets a sinner and a tax collector, he tells them both the same thing. What he tells them is, you're lost and need to be found. You're a sinner who needs forgiveness. In John's gospel, in John chapter 4, he meets a woman at the well who had had you know, multiple husbands and lovers, and he says, you're lost and you need eternal life. And this right after chapter 3, when he meets Nicodemus, the Pharisee of Pharisees, and he says to him, you're lost and you need to be born again. The great answer to the greatest problem, the greatest need in your life, 
is the forgiveness of your sin by the only one able to do it. The Son of God who came to take on your sin to Himself, to endure your punishment, to die your death, to be raised from the dead so that you, you now can become all that He is. John wants you to know Jesus. He's the Son of God. This is who He is. He came for sinners. And He came for those that don't know that they're sinners. Because both are equally in need. Let me ask you this morning, what's your response? Trying to get rid of Him? Trying to push Him aside? Telling yourself this morning, I don't know, I fully believe that. I think I've got things well in hand. you're You're on the wrong side this morning. This morning, you can respond. You can bow your head. You can, with humility in your heart, bow before God. To hear Him say, you are forgiven. And to receive that forgiveness and be changed. Pick up your mat and walk out. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see this morning. To take an honest look at who we are. And, Father, who who Jesus is to us, who who we have concluded that He is. And Father, to hear Mark tell He is our God, who is the only hope of our forgiveness of sin, and that there's not anything we can do or no goodness that we can be a part of for any sustained period of time that moves the needle on our relationship with You that we need your son Jesus to crash into our life, to go to the heart of our need, and to forgive us of our sin. And Father, this morning, we'd know that forgiveness, maybe some for the very first time. Maybe others to experience it fresh all over again. to be freed from the paralysis of what sin does to our core. To, Father, find ourselves getting up and walking with you. So, Father, I pray that you do that. Eyes to see and ears to hear. And hearts that would bow before you. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.